For people who were kind of like, oh fuck man, I like when you guys bullshit about, like, statues being torn down, but I don't want to hear you do too much heavy theoretical shit. To just be patient and work with us. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And we are going to be jumping back into the Marcus Gabriel book, Fields of Sense, a new realist ontology this week, and I'm very excited. I feel like this is one of those books, and I'm glad he actually said it in this chapter. He says something along the lines of his dialectic that he's actually developing. This is one of those books that is like building up momentum and building up potency, and that the more that we inch through the book, the more it starts to come alive. And even though he only gives you glimpses, it's like he does... He gives you, like, the full picture, and then he kind of, like, reduces it down to, like, some tiny kernel, and then he, like, foreshadows about something even bigger than the big picture he gave you, and then he kind of, like, comes back down to size, which is a wonderful dialectic approach, but it, it really is picking up steam, so I'm kind of getting stoked about this book, man. How you feeling? Yeah, I do like the little glimpses you get of the larger arguments, um, even though the, uh, the whole discussion of, as we'll talk about later, um, proper properties versus metaphysical properties versus logical properties seems... Like it means nothing. Um, getting glimpses of that larger approach, it motivates you to do the work, right? It motivates yeah. you to do the jumping jacks, to do the suicides. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't just spoon feed it to you, man. This is philosophy, bro. You got to tarry with the negative a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. No, when I was reading it, I was – we won't talk about too much about this, but I will say that it, it, it was interesting because I was kind of like – but. This isn't even your argument. Why are you spending so much time developing the intricacies of an argument that you just fundamentally reject? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I, I do see the rationale behind it. And it's actually been really good for me because it's filling in a lot of gaps in, um, in certain forms of like argumentation and especially figures, right? Like Russell in particular, somebody that I just don't spend any time on. And so it's it's been very good for me to kind of like hold my hand, if you will, through certain arguments that I've probably come at from the other end or from at um, a different set of, of, uh, of first principles. So it's been really good in that sense. It's giving me a different kind of toolbox, um, almost a different linguistic tools um, by which I'm able to kind of access similar concerns that I've had as well. So that's been great. Yeah, and I imagine we'll get more of that as we go through um, early analytic figures in addition to Russell, like Frege, and then eventually later on Kripke. I would imagine. Sweet. So yeah, so that's what we're going to be getting into today. Um, I will say this at the outset, too, for people who are kind of like, oh, fuck, man, I like when you guys bullshit about like statues being torn down, but I don't want to hear you do too much heavy theoretical shit. Uh, listen, this is tough. This text is tough. Um it is definitely dense, but I would really encourage you to just be patient and work with us. And so I'm I'm working through a lot of kind of like other dense philosophical texts at the moment. And one of the things that I really enjoy is approaching a text, approaching a set of ideas, um, approaching some concepts, not, not with the orientation or the expectation that they're somehow going to just um, assert themselves to me but rather in a very sort of lingering and patient sense where I'm opened up to 
these ideas, these thoughts, these formulations, um, and kind of like shifting my orientation to the concepts and then within the concepts, if that makes sense. Like think of yourself as like facing them, right? And and like looking at how to enter into them. And then you use all the prepositions you want. Um, you know, are you in it, through it, around it, on top of it, under it, over it, whatever. Um, and by the end of this text, maybe you will be literally over philosophy. I don't know. Um, but I think uh, you just described but, like having sexual relations with the text. It, it is, man. It, there's a libidinal thing going on here dude but i just i do i want to encourage people like get access to the book you can get digital copies online um you know if you can get the hardback or like a physical copy that's great as well um but even if you can't just try to listen to and we're going to do our best to kind of like hold each other's hands through this and hopefully yours as well but without just simply telling you what it means right and I think we need to resist that tendency. It's not just tell me what it means. I just want to know the facts, you know, one plus two equals three type of uh, analytical rationality, but much more of kind of like figuring out how to navigate, if you will, the complex sea of concepts. So that's all I want to say. Yeah. So we still do our bullshitting. It's just a little bit heavier this time around. That's okay. Yeah. Some, sometimes you get hot and heavy and other times, you know, you sit back and you watch some Netflix. That's right. Yeah, it can't be fucking erotic all the time. <laughs> all right, so we do want to mention, before we get to our uh, several uh, key segments of the show, that you can support us on patreon.com at patreon.com slash dawn. There you get access to goodies like the bonus episodes we occasionally produce, our monthly newsletter, which has extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes, and the ability to vote on our next patron-sponsored episode. So if you want access to those goodies, go to patreon.com slash dawn. Damn straight, man. So before we get into this talking about the Gabriel stuff, we got to do the first segment of the show, dude. You know what that is, right? The erotics, bro. The shitty minutes of the erotics? I mean, it's one of them, right? It's got to be. Yeah, I guess. I, I, think, I think of it more as like the resentment part of the episode. I mean, but don't you ever hate fuck, you know? It's, it's the fight before the makeup. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So... The Shitty Minute is the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? So, for my anger bang this week, um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about uh, a tweet thread that went viral this week. And uh, I thought it was very interesting and confusing. <laughs> and I wanted to share it first without comment, and then I will give you my comments about it. All right, so this was the thread. It was a, th uh, a conversation, a short little three-parter three between two people. And the first person says, Twitter leftists aren't at all prepared for the coming wave of cottagecore, mood board, making TikTok eco-fascist racist e-girls, but that's not a conversation anyone wants to have. The first response was, it sucks so much because I feel that a lot of the queer, anarchist, anti-racist people that fall under the cottagecore aesthetic are getting drowned out by the neo-manifest destiny aspirations of white trad femmes who are trying to revive a white man's burden mentality with the environment. Then the original commenter or poster responds, Absolutely, yeah. With aesthetics, the horseshoe theory is kind of a real thing, lol. I'm still mad thigh-high socks, femboy coder, light-up keyboard aesthetic got taken over by Fash, so I feel you. And that was it. Okay, Troy, did you see this? dude. <laughs> <laughs> so first, 
first, the responses to this were, you know, some of them were mere... <laughs> Some of them were hilarious, but some of them were kind of mean-spirited, right? So, like, first of all, there is a lot of very online jargon going on here, right? So mm-hmm. I I had to actually Google some of these terms because I had never heard of cottagecore. And so I was like, what the fuck is cottagecore? Like, as weird as it sounds, for some maybe it's just because phonetically it sounds like – I was thinking in my mind like cabbage patch. So I was like <laughs> – I was like, cottagecore? I was like, is this people dressed up like cottagecore? I was like, what the fuck? Um, But then once you Google it, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Basically, for people who are listening who don't know what cottagecore is, it's a certain aesthetic of people, especially that got really popular during the lockdowns, where people who are embracing the aesthetic of like a a nostalgic agrarian lifestyle, you know, baking your own bread, making your own butter, um, you know, dressing in kind of like – sound of music chic i guess you could call it um but uh it's also associated with like grandma core and goblin core and all these other cores right and what so but i had never heard core? of it goblin core is like it's related to cottage core but you're like really into like um like trinkets like uh like not not uh what not diamonds what the word i'm looking for like like little um, pendants and things like that. And you're into like, you know, tokens and like cool, like rustic metals and shit like that. I think it's supposed to be related to a sort of like medieval aesthetic, but it's more about, you don't dress like fucking goblins and shit like that or witches or anything, but you're kind of inspired by a sort of like um, fantasy aesthetic in terms of like jewelry and uh, trinkets and accessories and and I'm sure it kind of goes into other things as well like that. But, hmm. yeah. So, but, and then grandma core, you know, you're, like, dressing in, like, long dresses and, like, your grandma would, like, knit stuff and things like that, right? Um, and then, and then I didn't understand the reference to thigh-high socks, femboy, coder, light-up, keyboard aesthetic. So, I had to figure out what this coder, light-up, keyboard aesthetic was because i didn't know basically it's hackers right but it's like young zoomer young uh, it's like so zoomer and then like young millennial hackers who had like light up keyboards i guess um and a lot of them are gamers as well and apparently like it was a lot of uh like either trans or more effeminate dudes who were wearing like thigh high socks and shit like that and apparently this was an aesthetic for a bit i had no fucking clue I apparently i thought i was pretty online <laughs> I thought I was a pretty online dude, like especially for someone who is in his 30s, right? Like compared to uh, maybe a lot of like people, contemporaries, I'm pretty, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the Twitter no with some things, but th- sometimes I come across a thread like this and I realize, oh, I'm not at all online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not like the Zoomers so, are, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 I'm not at all. And as a matter of fact, then I kind of feel really happy that I'm not, you know? And I oftentimes go on Twitter or Insta and people are angry about something. Like it happened the other day with Lena Dunham. They were all mad at Lena Dunham because, you know, the, the, like someone reminded everybody about her pitch that she wrote on like a napkin for the TV show Girls and that that's all she needed. And so people are like, remember that she's really well connected and she's like the children of these people and the, she's associated with all these people and that's why she got, you know, the – uh, the production money for her show and shit like that. And then all these people were like, yeah, but you have all these people who they work for years and they put together Bibles and pitch documents and fucking sizzle reels and all this stuff. And they go into meetings fully prepared and they get rejected. And she is white privilege and rich privilege and all this other shit. And I, 
so they were just really mad at Lena Dunham. I went online, and I didn't know any of this. I actually had to do a little bit of Google research, which I only did because I was curious because I literally saw like 20 people in my timeline bitching about Lena Dunham. And I was like, what the fuck is everyone so mad about Lena Dunham for? And I was really glad that I didn't just know. You know, and then I was also, and I was also really glad that I wasn't like super angry about it as well, because the Twitter really is an outrage machine, right? And just like the online sphere, it seems like that the kind of like primary mode of communication is anger, <laughs> and so, and a lot of times resentment as well. And so, like, I was kind of really glad that I was disconnected from that one, and that I'm oftentimes disconnected from like the things in the know, and then it makes me feel better about how like I sometimes feel guilty about how online I actually am. But that's kind of just a little bit of an aside um, because this particular tweet thread in particular is really what I want to talk about. And it's not because I want to shit on the posters. Like, like yes, I do think that this language of like online jargon is kind of funny. Um, but more than anything, you know what I'm mad about, bro? Hmm. I found out that I apparently am a little bit cottagecore. <laughs> and that pisses me off. That it, pisses it, me off. In what sense? Because you made your desk. I make my desk. I <laughs> want to move. I want to move into tiny homes. I want. I'm down. Like I only use manuka honey on my face. I use a manuka honey fucking soap bar that is like organic and um, made from home. Um, I now I don't dress like the grandma core like cottagey style, but like I'm all down with wanting to have like a little herb garden and maybe even grow my own lettuce in my little tiny home and have like a really stripped back simple life. Like I got a little bit of cottage core in me, bro. And so I'm mad that this life that I kind of find appealing, wanting to live in a cabin and be out in nature and kind of just like have a really simple life. I'm mad that it's been codified as cottage core and that it's now a thing and that it's an aesthetic thing and that it's a brand. That's what I'm mad about, bro. I'm mad that I'm finding out that I have been identified. That's what I'm mad about. What well, the you're, fuck, you're, dude? Because now you're a mimetic iteration of yeah of some pre-existing identity. Yeah. 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 There's no authenticity, bro. I've been serialized in Sartre's <laughs> sense. That's what I'm fucking pissed about, bro. Well, here's the thing, dude. Okay, here's my question. I have many questions, but here's one question. By the way, you're Kobe Core, and I just want you to know that. Okay. I'm not. I'm not Kobe Core at all, dude. You're Kobe Core, bro. Do you wear Laker jerseys? No, I don't have a single Laker jersey. Do you ever wear Laker colors? Do you sleep with a Laker, a Laker blanket? Do you have a Laker blanket, Troy? My dog does. <laughs> <laughs> no, it used to be you. It used to be your Laker blanket. Don't even. Fine. Well, Fucking okay, Sufi. Now. Sufi is Chamberlain core. <laughs> why why huh. Chamberlain core? I don't know. He was the next Laker I thought of. <laughs> magic um, core. Yeah, I'm definitely magic core, except for the okay. age thing. Um, <laughs> so here's my question. What makes, yeah. what makes something you do or wear or in some sense um, or whatever, right? Part of just something functional that you do versus part of your aesthetic identity. So what I'm wondering is there seems to be some sense in which people who are, you know, quote unquote, cottage core um, appreciate and value things like churning your own butter and whatever um the actual like aesthetic of it is inherently valuable to them like, it's done for its own sake in some sense right um maybe not entirely but there's some sense in which that's the case right whereas other people like say you're amish you churn butter because it's functionally <laughs> necessary to do given your circumstances right 
Um, there's a difference there, right? You wouldn't call an Amish person cottagecore. Uh, they could be, I guess, but they wouldn't. Oh no, dude! They they are the original cottage core, bro. But they, but they may not may not, uh, may not be right. They might just do it because that's where they that's the sort of life they grew up in, and it's what they do. Like when they churn their butter, they're not doing it because they're cottage core. They're doing it because they want butter, right? It's a means to an end, right? Uh, it happens to be the most efficient means to an end given their circumstances. So there seems to be a difference between like that sort of functional necessity versus a thing being part of one's aesthetic identity and cottage cores in reference to the latter, right? So like, I would think in that sense, maybe you would be cottage core in your whole, like I make my desk thing. Cause that's, you know, um, fucking cool or whatever. And you just appreciate it for its own sake. But then you're not when you use like Manuka honey, because you just do that. Cause it's, it works, right? It's not part of like an identity for its own sake kind of a thing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think what's, what we're really investigating is like something about degrees of um, like cognitive ab- abstraction here, right? So I would actually say that there is something ideological about the Amish churning butter that is also self-reflective because they're doing it in a reinforcing sense um, insofar as they are induced into this quote, apparent functional activity, which appears to be purely functional, but it's also part of a larger kind of worldview, we might say, right, um, that is that is self-reflective. So there is um, an intentional desire to incorporate oneself, to self-serialize um, within that uh, within that lifestyle. Now, I think the issue here is that it becomes an aesthetic and I use that word with quotes because I'm not using this in the richer sense of like 19th century aesthetics or something like that, right? But aesthetic in the sense of spectacle. And that's why I think this is important here. The degree between the, the degree of difference between what I just described about the Amish person and somebody who self-consciously identifies as cottagecore, for example, as an aesthetic lifestyle choice is very different because I think the latter is much more inculcated into a type of brand. And I think it's much more a symptom of, um, of course, you're going to say this, Austin, it's much more a symptom of like late capitalistic, neoliberalistic um, spectacle. Right, which is is very much part and parcel of the desire to aestheticize oneself, to brand oneself, to identify oneself with an a, a prefabricated identity, and then to live according to that. Which is kind of an, uh, you know, from a Marxist perspective, this is very much. Um, uh, we could kind of critique this as being a cognitive abstraction, a, a type of mystification. Not in the sense that, like, oh, you're stupid, you're mystified, because, you know, in, in this sense, like, we all have our own forms of mystification and abstraction that condition our ideological orientations in the world. But, yeah, I think that's the difference, is the degree to which cognitive abstraction takes hold and then becomes the sort of, like, frame by which we self-serialize or the process of embourgeoisement, we might say. And I think that's really what's going on here. Yeah, there's some element that's kind of, I don't know if, if ironic would be the right term for it, but um, the sense in which there's this drive to place yourself within this sort of um, serialized identity, um, yeah. but you have to self-consciously do, right? Part of the whole aesthetic identity thing is you have to do it self-consciously, right? Like you can't like discover, I guess you can discover your cottage core as you did, right? But in some sense, it's not really <laughs> the case until you've um, self-consciously chosen to do it but it's in some sense like you're self-consciously choosing to place yourself outside of the realm of freedom right to put yourself mm. 
in a sort of uh, box, as it were. I'm not, not in that sense in which you're sort of like selling your autonomy or something or placing yourself into into servitude or slavery or something like that. I'm not going to claim that. I don't think it's necessarily no. that normatively yeah, yeah. laden, right? But um, it is it is sort of strange that that identity, that sort of someone's aesthetic identity has has it kind of works like that now, especially in the realm of social media, right? Where you mm. kind of place yourself into this box and then you sort of almost follow it like it's a um, set of religious principles. Um, hmm. Not necessarily in a bad way. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be totally innocuous, right? Um, mm. But it has that so sort of formal features, it seems to me. Yeah, and the pessimistic take on this, the pessimistic critical take on this would be that, oh, you're just a fucking idiot, right? You're just fucking blinded by your own ideological embourgeoisement, right? Um, which you get oftentimes from certain like anti-woke leftists that want to criticize the aesthetic, uh, the entire aesthetic branding lifestyle. But then what you hint at, I think is something really important, which might be a more optimistic take on this. There is something free in this because it is a kind of, um, self chosen enclosure in a way. Right. So there's something about maybe even like a, a clamoring for like a spirit of vitality, um, a clamoring for community, um, maybe like trying to figure out modes by which everyday communism, to use David Graeber's term, everyday communism can be expressed, that there are like flows of connectivity that um, are actually authentic in this community forming and this identity identification as well. And so I think that I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that more pessimistic critical take. One, because I think it also comes from uh, a set of metaphysical assumptions about the world that I think is wrong, but we can go into that another time. But um, also, it seems to be critically insufficient for actually understanding um, how it is that the process of abstraction actually operates under capital. So I think it's also insufficient from within a Marxist framework. And then third, it just seems kind of fucking mean. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that when you actually engage with somebody who is like self-consciously cottagecore or something like that, they oftentimes know that it can be silly or that it's funny, or that it's fun, or that it's entertainment, or that it's amusement, or they can kind of see that there's some there's something in it that is excessive of them just being like a blind automaton, right? Yeah, you know the people that that say that that stuff is is stupid and infantile are always almost always Gen Xers who grew up with like '90s Seinfeld <laughs> ironic detachment from everything meaningful, and right. so for them the only way to treat anything. Um, that can be taken seriously is with ironic attachment, right? And if you are, if you have that ironic attachment, you're an atheist about identity or, or anything involving like aesthetic identity, right? But then mm. I think one positive thing that that this whole trend seems to show is that it's totally possible to find something to be meaningful and also have mm. some ironic attachment with it, and to kind of go back and forth between the two in a sort of play of um, irony and meaning. Like those two things can mm. coexist very fruitfully. And it seems like to me like the younger generation really has sort of understood that and internalized that and inculcated that in a positive way. Yeah. This is that new sincerity, metamodern yeah. stuff that we talked about in that metamodern episode that we did ages ago with Seth Abramson. If you're interested in that, by the way, if you're listening, this really fits into that, the, dis the difference between exactly what Troy was talking about, that sort of like nihilistic, ironic detachment, but then sort of this desire for sincerity and to not shit on um, – uh, on actually caring about things. <laughs> so even though you don't ignore um, irony, right? It's it's like a, a Hegelian synthesis in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's very much akin to like people who obsess over genres in music. 
and I'm someone who does that just because you know I'm OCD. I like to you know classify and categorize things, <laughs> and I love music. Right. So I get super into thinking about the intersection of different genres and amongst artists and in history and stuff like that. And if you don't, if you take that stuff too seriously, then you're obviously just obsessing um, over over things that are sort of supposed to be functional in some way. And it's it's clear from the names these people that these kids give these identities that they're taking, they're not taking it too seriously. You don't call something cottage core if you're devoting your entire life and are willing to die for it. Right. <laughs> you call it that because it's kind of funny too. <laughs> right. People don't label themselves femboys because they're taking it too seriously. Right. Grandma core. I mean, come on. There's, <laughs> there's obviously levity in that, you know? And at the same time, there's also a sort of like reclaiming of the value of grandmas and shit like that, you know? Whereas rather than just view them as a discarded piece uh, that doesn't have any place in society, there's a sense in which the grandma aesthetic is kind of cool. And even though that's not the intention by using grandma core, there's an interesting juxtaposition of concepts there that can kind of like create new domains for creative thinking. Which has a social impact and which really derives, I think, from a particular set of social practices too. So anyway, we're, we've gone on long enough probably about this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's my shitty minute. I've been serialized. I've been seen. <laughs> I've been codified. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst thing about this, I think, is I'm thinking about, you know, I've always dreamed of myself as being like, you know, a 50, 60-year-old professor who still understands the young kids, right? Yes, and sort of me too. Say their jokes back to them and make references to um, whatever's in the you know currently idiomatic uh, place and culture. And I'm just thinking they're gonna roast the fuck out of me just like I did oh, yeah. and you did to our professors in college. Yeah, you're gonna be fucking Steve Steve Buscemi in that meme. <laughs> what, what does he say? Like, what's up, young fellas? Hello, fellow kids. Yeah. Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep, sad realization. All right, sick. Let's jump into the main segment here. Yeah, brother? Yeah, yeah. All right, so as we said, we're still working through, as we will be for quite a while, I would imagine, Marcus Gabriel's Fields of Sense, a new realist ontology. And this week, we are going to be talking about Chapter 2. Um, which is called Existence is Not a Proper Property. And so we will talk about all of that in the next little while here. Troy, initial thoughts about this chapter yeah, so or the maybe, discussion so far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe a little bit of uh, explanatory uh, work here before we um, dive into the actual arguments. So remember the first chapter after the introduction, Gabriel, uh, the chapter is called Zoontology. And in it, Gabriel is sort of critiquing what he calls zoontological optimism and zoontological pessimism. These two sort of uh, ontological views that he thinks are sort of pervasive in certain maybe 20th century philosophy in general. Um, and so I have here just a couple of quotes to uh, jog some memory from our previous episode on this subject. Gabriel says zoontological optimism is the wrong kind of emphasis on zoontology, which leads to thinking that ontology is generally somehow constrained or governed by features of human development or rationality. Um, and then zoontological pessimism, he says, is the view that our interests and their relation to our interest independent belonging to nature do not really matter in ontology. So one is sort of an overemphasis on the human place in a general ontology, and one is a sort of underemphasis on it or a sort of collapsing of the human into everything else without taking note of the difference or distinction of humanness. And so 
as the subtitle of the book um, states, Gabriel wants to develop a realist ontology, right? So he's not developing any sort of anti-realism that maybe um, was popular in the late 20th century. Um, but he also doesn't want to sort of fall into maybe a reductive naturalism that might be popular in the Anglo-American uh, schools of thought in the late 20th century. So he wants to sort of skirt between um, those two dominant trends on the continent and, the, and in America um, in the late 20th century and develop a realist ontology, which also takes account of um, the sort of distinct human uh, ontology as well. Mm. Yep, I'm with you. Sounds good. All right. So, so this chapter is called "Existence is Not a Proper Property." So, um, do you think it would be helpful to talk about this whole "existence is a property" thing and why it's a debate, or is that too inside baseball for this? It would be good for me. I mean, the way I remember it, and this may not be the best sort of genealogy of this of this discussion or this debate, um, but from I, I think maybe this is from your experience too. Uh, it kind of stems from Anselm, right? Mm, the I, mean, I know argument. Yeah, I know yeah. Plato and Aristotle um, talk about it too. But as far as the debate's concerned, I think with Anselm, uh, his ontological argument claims that, or tries to claim that in some sense you can ascribe existence as a property to God, which is a necessary property um, given the concept of God. And so Anselm, in some, in some sense, tries to prove that God exists of necessity without actually dealing with any sort of empirical evidence uh, or even really some sort of um, rational deduction from premises to conclusion, he sort of just makes it the case that it, that the existence is a necessary property that God has, or else God wouldn't be a perfect being. And so mm. one of the ways of sort of attacking that argument is to claim that existence isn't even a property. And so you can't really talk about uh, something having the property of existence at all. It's a sort of nonsense um, claim to make. And so that's a way of undercutting the ontological argument at its knees i think it's uh, kant was most famous for making that claim right mm, okay so that, yeah so yep. that that's as far as i remember the um uh, sort of genealogy of that debate and gabriel here doesn't mention that stuff although he does mention kant's use of this argument at times his purpose is a little different from what i take it he wants to talk about um the kind of property so maybe even a more nuanced understanding, not just whether an existence is a property or not, but what kind of property it would be if it were, right? Um, mm. So he distinguishes proper properties, as the title of the chapter implies, um, which he defines as things which um, distinguish one object from another in a domain. And we'll talk about what that means in a bit. And he distinguishes that from what he calls metaphysical properties, logical properties, and ontological properties. So we'll get into the distinction between those two, four types of properties, I imagine, as we dive into this chapter. Sweet. Yeah. Is this like a typical formulation that one finds in analytic literature, this distinction between proper metaphysical and logical properties? Or is this kind of his distilling of tendencies? I mean, I don't know that I've heard it described in exactly this way. I mean, certainly analytic metaphysicians talk about essential properties. Um, which he talks about here. Uh, they talk about essential versus non-essential properties. I'm okay. sure there's some discussion in the literature about um, something about metaphysical and logical properties as well. I'm not sure if they use those exact terms that he's using or if he's sort of providing his own gloss on the subject. But it's definitely, um, you know, the different kinds of properties. That's a, certainly a, a discussion topic in analytic metaphysics. Not my favorite okay. one, <laughs> but it is one. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so how do you want to tackle this? Do you want to talk just first? I mean, the title of the chapter is Existence is Not a Proper Property, but I feel like that's kind of actually a bad title for the chapter. It feels like there's something much there's something different going on here. Like, yes, that is true, but I almost feel like that's not even... There's something interesting in him titling this chapter, don't you think? Yes, can you say more? Well, it just seems like like what you get in this chapter is not simply an argument uh, against how existence is not a proper property, but you get much more a critique of what he later refers to as naive ontology. Now, they relate, Mm -hmm. but... It seems much more that like that's the theme of this chapter, or what he calls what is it, first order metaphysical materialism. Um, it seems that that's really the critique of this chapter. So I wonder why title it "Existence is Not a Proper Property." Like, there's something. Is that because that's kind of he's almost using the title um, as an entry point into this larger argument, and so that the title almost we usually think of a title as being like an all encompassing concept that totalizes but it's interesting because since he rejects that itself as kind of being a sufficient ontological move i wonder if that's why he's using the title in the way that he's using it yeah i don't know because as much as he does reject totality as being uh, a metaphysical option he's not rejecting it as a methodological option for writing chapters or developing dialectic right he's pretty traditional it seems like in a lot of cases in the way he's sort of developing his mm. arguments but then I, I agree with you that it seems like obviously the enemy here is the first order materialist metaphysics stuff right um and also the the naive um ontology part but i think he's more just stating that as being a, a default option that almost everybody in metaphysics holds and not something that's really something that's self-conscious necessarily whereas first order materialist metaphysics is the real enemy i think that um he wants to reject in the end and so yeah, it, it's a bit weird. This whole chapter to me was was difficult, um, trying to see the the forest for the trees in terms of mm. what he's trying to argue here. I wonder if when we look back on it, I mean, his argument comes into better uh, view if, if this chapter will make a little bit more sense in the as a sort of moment in the dialectic. You know what? Can we do something then? Let's read, let's go through this chapter backwards. And what I mean by that is let's, Let's start with kind of his conclusion, right? Okay. Where where he talks about um, there are theoretical ontological options, and then he critiques um, this first order metaphysical materialism, and then let's let's see if that does something. Because when I got to the end, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like that seems like there's some elements of this that are that are quite um, intuitive. And then some of it where I, I too was kind of like, where are we going here? Like from talking about truth and facts and truth apt uh, assertions and then all of a sudden you're talking about existence. It was hard for me to see the connection at first. Um, and then when we got to the end, I was kind of like, okay, so I, I kind of get the um, I get the overall point, I think, of the chapter, if that makes sense. Yeah, there are, he does have a... a- sort of pension for weird segues and and tangents when then he'll say but never mind this let's get back to the argument (laughs) it's sort of like he's recording himself um just going maybe maybe Mm. gabriel needs an editor i don't know but i I appreciate it because it it doesn't make connections to things that i think are pertinent and important um even if he's not going to sort of dive into them fully it helps you get a a Mm. sense of the 
the scope of the argument, that it affects all these important areas, even if it's, we're not going to sort of detail exactly how that's the case here. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So when, when I say metaphysics, yeah. is that where to start? Yeah. Well, yeah. Want to start with that? Yeah. Go ahead. First order materialist metaphysics. Yeah. So this is the name FOM, first order materialist metaphysics, um, that Gabriel gives for, he says, the false and unscientific view that there are only elementary particles. And he likens this also to what he calls rampant nominalism, or the view <laughs> that there are only individuals and their properties are not universals, but also individuals, which is kind of contemporary nominalism in, in analytic metaphysics. Um, I have a question real quick. Yeah. Do you think that there is a necessary um, terminological shift by not talking about particulars, but talking about individuals? For Gabriel or for yeah. metaphysics in for, Ga- for Gabriel, For Gabriel and then let's say just more generally. Like is this is this integral to his argument because he's distinguishing the typical maybe what he would call myriological tendencies of the relations between particulars and universals? And so that's why he isn't talking – like when he talks about nominalism, normally the way that people speak about nominalism is not – they don't use the word individual, right? They use the word particular. So why is he using individual, and is that essential? You think? I'm not sure. I have to think about it. Although I do, I do want to point out he distinguishes individuals from objects, and so right, isn't it the case that he says that objects are all individuals are objects, but not uh, all objects are individuals, right? So individuals are subsumed within objects. Um, right, because individuals heard. are sufficiently determined, right? Or satisfactorily, I'm sorry. Satisfactorily, satisfactorily, yeah. Satisfactorily determined within a domain. And um, it, he defines that as being the ability to be the content of a truth-apt thought. right? Or sort of makes basically, it's a thing you can think or refer to. There's some Kripkean stuff happening here, which we can talk about. Um, okay. About the, th- the ability to sort of refer to a thing, which you can do. Um, even if you're wrong about it, maybe even it isn't sort of physically instantiated, so on and so forth. Um, okay. Whereas individuals, he says, are objects that have proper properties, or they can be distinguished from other objects in a domain. So you can be an object without having proper properties. It's sort of the the cash value of that distinction there. You can be an object without having proper properties, or you can be an object without having satisfactorily determined proper properties? You can be an object without being able to be distinguished from other objects in a domain. Okay. The, the point that he's trying to trying to make here, but but individuals are all satisfactorily determined, let's say, in their place, based on the proper property. Yeah, individual is going to say you can distinguish them from other objects in the domain. Okay, and and this is because they have a proper property that distinguishes them, that is yeah. unique to them, that is At unique least. to them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, I just was curious. Okay, so uh, first order meta- materialist metaphysics. Yeah, so this is again the name he gives for the view he wants to to defeat, and it's a common one. We talked about it in the previous episode on the book, where um, it seems like the 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 big enemy that Gabriel has in mind is this sort of um, reductive scientism or a reductive physicalism or physicalism or whatever name you want to give for the various views here um, that sort of take like contemporary physics or he uses the term materialism which i appreciate because i think it's the Mm. it's the more catch-all term for what all these things have in common 
um, that there are only that materialism says there are only material or physical things, and that's it. And sort of the the more extreme version of that view would be uh, sort of adding nominalism to it, which is not only are there only physical things, but all physical things are elementary particles, and that's it. So this is kind of like a a myriological nihilism uh, or myriological sort of reductivism, where there are only elementary particles and that's it. And there, any sort of combination of those things is a mere combination of those things, right? So mm. uh, people that, that hold this view will say things like, um, there is no desk in front of you. There is only There are only atoms arranged mm. desk-wise. Um, right. There is no sort of person speaking into this microphone. There is only There are only atoms arranged person-wise or whatever, right? It's kind of supposed to be half-jokingly. At least I hope it's supposed to be. Um, but that gives you a, a sort of insight into the way that that kind of ontology is going to view the world. There are only whatever the elementary particles are. We don't know what they are yet, but whatever they are, there's only that. And then they exist in mere combinations, which are not greater than the sum of their parts. Mm. Is it accurate, you think, to to connect nominalism with materialism? Like, is it are, are they equivalencies or is one motivated by the other? I mean, no, definitely not, right? Because you can be a materialist in the sense he's using here and not be a nominalist. Um, and you can be a nominalist but still hold to what's called conceptual nominalism or abstract nominalism, right? Yeah, you can believe there's non-physical things and be a nominalist, sure, yeah. Right. I mean, okay. lots of lots of Christian philosophers this way because they believe souls yeah, are, yeah. Uh, in, are sort of individual things, right? So. Um, I was thinking of Le- I was thinking of Leibniz too, and like monadology, and then mm-hmm. how this kind of inspires Deleuze in a lot of ways. Because um, I I see the word nominalism, and immediately my mind goes to like fucking Scotus and university, and I'm thinking about all of these things here, and um, I'm trying to think of uh, kind of fitting Deleuze into in a lot of let's say post Heideggerian metaphysics into this this critique as he's developing it and I'm trying to think in what way would Deleuze be subject to this uh, critique of rampant nominalism and is there a sense in which there's still something extra in Deleuze's metaphysics that might be and I checked in the index he doesn't mention Deleuze at all I wouldn't think that he would but because he deals with Bedou I just didn't know if he dealt with other like continental thinkers um but i wonder if there's something kind of outside if you will of um this critique of rampant nominalism that is uh that is associated with first order materialist metaphysics um if there's something kind of in these other thinkers that might circumvent that critique so that's kind of where my mind is at a lot of times in this as well Hmm. do you think gabriel's a francophobe yeah i don't know it's interesting does he Um, mention sartre uh i don't think so um I did look through the index the other day. I wonder if he is. Um, he does. <laughs> I mean, he deals. He definitely deals a lot with Bedou. But I think because he's critical of set theory, I think that he's ultimately going to like use Bedou as a valuable thinker who is like moving in a different direction, but from which he ultimately distances himself. And then, of course, he deals with Mayasu. But again, Mayasu is kind of like the oh, uh, the, the the redheaded stepchild of continental philosophy. You know. <laughs> Yeah, so, so. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, I'm interested to see what you think about that Deleuze question, because I haven't thought about that, but I think from my limited experience with Deleuze that there's something interesting there with the emphasis on on individuals. Um, so, yeah, keep that in mind and bring it up later if you get a, a more concrete thought about it. Okay. But, you know, one thing I appreciate about um, him sort of narrowing this critique towards the first order materialist metaphysics and the rampant nominalism is while they're not coextensive, right? There's a tendency 
there for those to sort of be married together, right? Like they have an off and on relationship that's pretty heated, right? Um, mm. And the reason for that, what they have in common is they're both reductionist programs, right? Mm. Materialism in the sense he's using it is, is sort of a, a reductionist program and so is nominalism in this sense, right? And so they're married together because of that um, intention towards uh, redu- like reducing things to something that's simpler or more elegant or whatever the term they want to use for um, the, mm. the virtues of, of reduction. And that obviously, you know, I've talked about before, it's something that I think is uh, unwarranted and very, very bad for philosophy. So he hasn't mentioned that yet, I don't think explicitly, but I, I do think that one thing, one motivating uh, feature here for Gabriel is to reject these kind of reductionisms in favor of not sort of blowing up ontology to be the you know like ma- most maximally ontological theory, obviously, right? Mm. Um, but in the sense of the fact that reductionism tends to erase things that are real um, for the sake of simplifying for its own sake. And that's an mm. unwarranted justification for developing an ontology. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's probably why those two terms go together. Hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to add another layer to this, and this is going to be perpetually where my mind goes throughout this text since it fits into my research interests. But I'm going to add um, some like political philosophy into this along the way. And I'm going to say that one of the things that I find valuable in this critique of first order materialist metaphysics is that I think it also can be used to critique certain tendencies within political formulations, which oftentimes try to distill things down to some sort of essential truth right um some of them are rooted in like an explicit like physics um but a lot of them also even in their more sort of like um like larger conceptual programs reduce things down to like little unit inputs like you know atomized individuals or uh you know we were talking before we were recording uh, about like a traditional marxist view that kind of like distills every everything down to like labor as being the archimedean point around which everything else revolves. Um, you get Laclau and Mouffe who try to identify these like nodal points that can be the, the kind of seed of, of building out from there. But I think all of these things could be subject in various ways to a similar critique that he's leveling here against first-order materialist metaphysics in the reductionism that you talk about. And that's, for me, what's really interesting, is how that there is a way that we can critique political ontologies from within this project yeah dude that's like everything that i care about in terms of connecting (laughs) i mean i've talked about that before like the the unholy trinity right of capitalism utilitarianism and empiricism right Mm. and they're all reductionist programs right that's the commonality Mm. between them um i mean it's there's more than that that's involved in why they have like this sort of stranglehold on politics economics philosophy uh, and ethics, right? But that's the commonality between them. That's why they fit well together. It's, it's a good part of why they fit well together. Um, mm. And so, yeah, they're all reductionist programs. And so it's, it shouldn't at all be out of bounds to talk about how sort of metaphysics um, is going to have a similar trend here in the late 20th century as in politics, economics, um, and I think ethics too. All these reductionist programs are trying to create a overly simplified system for the sake of management, right? Mm. And it goes wrong for that reason. It aligns mm. things that are extremely important, in fact, necessary for that domain of thought. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
So kind of moving on from there, we kind of get a basic idea of what this first order materialist metaphysics is. Um, he says that this is uh, the kind of um, uh, that this is a form of or that that it is um, undergirded by naive ontology, right? So is this where we should talk about naive ontology, or is there something else you want to say about first-order materialist metaphysics? Because um, it seems I mean, to me that the reason the reason that first-order materialist metaphysics is is wrong for Gabriel is precisely because it's motivated by this naive ontology, right? Which then ultimately submits first-order materialist metaphysics to being uh, critiqued in like a Heideggerian sense, uh, that it's ontotheology, right? That he says that behind the idea that ontology is essentially metaphysics, um, or I'm sorry, that, 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 that it is true that behind the idea that ontology is essentially a metaphysics, which is the ontotheological critique from Heidegger, and that first-order materialist metaphysics is, is subject to that critique, yeah? Yeah, I thought that you were jumping for joy at the idea of him bringing in ontotheology here. Of course, man. I, I, I smelled it from the fucking first page. <laughs> Not even kidding. I'm trying to find my note on it, but yeah, because that's... That's my kind of like toy at the moment. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So go yeah, ahead. So we can talk about naive ontology and the, the metaphysical fallacy. Those are two things okay. we can get into here. Okay. So you want to talk about naive ontology? Um, here, you start because I got to find my space or my, yes. my note. So he, he has a strange, strangely um, kind of abstract way of formulating the definition of naive ontology. And it took me a minute and we'll see if we can unpack it. But... There's a series of statements he says that are sort of um, emblematic of naive ontology. And they're all sort of basic statements that he thinks are sort of um, the default ontology that uh, almost anyone, but also he thinks academics and philosophy have about um, their ontology. So one is that uh, the definition of existence is to be in a world or in the world. Um, what is in the world has properties and individuals are distinguished by these properties. So to exist is to be an individual um, in this world that has properties by which one can be distinguished. All really basic, sounds abstract and, and, and too overly formulaic, but that's just a basic understanding of what existence tends to mean when we use it in a somewhat more philosophical sense. Um, and that, if that's the case, he's going to say that the world is not an individual in the world, um, but is instead the container of all the individuals. So we have this sort of totalizing sense of the world as being the container of all the individuals that exist within it, and that are distinguished by the proper properties that they have within it. Yeah. Yeah, and this is important. It's important to just reiterate, this is not his position. This is the position of what he calls naive ontology. And just uh, up on that page where he kind of lays out that little five-step formulation, it's page 56, he says um, that from this perspective, for something to exist is for it to be contained in the world, which is an idea accepted by many contemporary metaphysicians, right? And so then he says... Metaphysics primarily deals with the world. It is the theory of totality of the world as world, a unified domain of absolutely everything. And absolutely everything exists in the world, the domain to which every single thing belongs. So now in my head, I'm thinking here of a myriological relation, right? So you have parts and you have a whole. And the world is the whole and the parts uh, compose that world. The, the parts only obtain in their insistence insofar as they are contained by the world. 
Now, this can be formulated in different ways, you know, that the world is kind of like the ultimate mediator that distinguishes the relations between the parts, or that they're just like perfectly dispersed, atomized individuals within the world, and the world is just some sort of clearly delineated boundary, blah, blah, blah. There are different ways to formulate it, but the point is, is that there is a tendency that kind of incorporates a certain ontological orientation, a metaphysical orientation that presumes that there are parts and that they uh, compose, if you will, a totality, but the totality, the world, inscribes the border limits around it, is more than just kind of like uh, the sum of those parts. It kind of in itself is um, uh, uh, a container, right? But it is not a part of the world. It is not an individual. Does that make sense? Right. Not an individual yeah. in the world, but a thing you can predicate. Right, but it is an individual. Huh. Did he say that somewhere? No, he doesn't. That's what I'm he wondering. He says it's not an individual in the world, right? But it's right. an individual. Yeah. So then it can't be so then this is now this is again according to naive on ontology, right? Not his position. But Yeah, right. Right. Um cuz it is a it is it, it is a universal, right? So it can be instantiated multiply. Um I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, how can we characterize the world in naive ontology? Is it like uh, a singular entity that is unique in itself as well as being a container? Or is that not a move that needs to be made? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I wonder if maybe Gabriel would just say naive ontology just leaves that question off about whether the world is an individual. It's certainly not an individual in the world. Um, Oh, you know, I'm sorry. He does mention this. On page 30, 56, he says, Kant, um, I, I highlight it and I have a little note here in the margin. Kant might have been the first to really point out that the conclusion is unwarranted, right? Because he identified an air of paradox surrounding the view that the world is an individual. So naive ontology does assert that the world is an individual, but Kant hints to a paradox in that. Yeah, which is if it's an individual, then you can say, well, what are its what's the domain that it's in? Precisely. That, okay, that leads so, you to the yeah, the infinite, infinite like okay. progress there. Exactly, and this is where the Heideggerian critique of ontotheology comes in because the individual is understood in its presencing, right? So the totality itself is a presencing, and then of course all the component parts are uh, as well, right? So yeah, okay, yes, yes, right. And so from here, Gabriel talks about the. Um, what he calls the argument from the green world. Uh, Which I really liked. I really liked this section. Yeah, I did too. Although I have to admit, Gabriel does not have a flair for naming things. (laughs) The green world, the brown world. And the hat world. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, uh, yeah, he's he's got that tendency from, I don't know if it's more about his being German or more about him doing an analytic philosophy style uh, argument. But yeah, not not a flair for developing (laughs) names for these things. First order of materialist metaphysics. That's purely functional. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah when he does have flair it's just to be um like imprecatory with like rampant nominalism <laughs> yeah 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 exactly I'm title it rampant yeah so the argument from the green world uh gabriel has us imagine a world where everything is green and he says in that world the predicate is green so something x y is green it becomes a metaphysical property at that sense and not a proper property uh, and we should go back there for a second to a proper property. Again, as we said, is a property where you can you can use that property to distinguish things 
in a domain. So you can sort of take any group of objects or whatever, and you can distinguish things in that group by their proper properties. Um, if you can't do that, then that property that it has is not a proper property, but it could be a metaphysical property. And Gabriel defines a metaphysical property as the property anything has to have in order to belong to the world. So um, you might think, for, for example, that existence is a metaphysical property. If that's the sort of property you have to have to exist in the domain of, say, the world, um, mm. the totality world, uh, for instance. So in a world where everything is green, the predicate is green, being green, basically, the property of being green becomes a metaphysical property, right? Because then mm. it's the kind of thing you have to have to be in the world, it seems like, right? Um, mm. Even though being green in that world would still be contingent, it just happens to be the case that everything's green. It's not necessarily the case that everything's green. Um, so in that kind of a world, you might think, you know, if someone lived in this green world, they would think being green is a metaphysical property. The thing you have to have to be in the world but it's not really because it's still contingent a red thing could just pop up and then all of a sudden you've been proven wrong you've been your your hypothesis about being green being a metaphysical property has been refuted the second that a red thing pops up right hmm. um so he says that sort of confusion which probably everybody in the green world would have might be like what we're having right now when we think that existence um is a metaphysical property maybe Maybe that's just a contingent thing, right? Um, so he's using the sort of green world as a way of, of showing how we might be just as naive in our world in thinking existence is a property you have to have to be in the world as uh, green is or being green is in the green world. Mm. Yeah, and then, I mean, isn't the, the ultimate conclusion here is that he wants to argue that there is no such thing as bare existence, right? So mm. how does he get there? So he mentions the metaphysical fallacy next, which is uh, when someone's misled by what exists in their given domain into thinking that some predicate which ranges over everything, um, which is contingent, is, is, that, is thought of as being necessary. So like greenness is in that green world. Um, what uh, he's, he labels like, a, he's kind of hinting at the, what he'll later call the first order of materials metaphysics uh, extension is in our world. Like you might look at the world right now and say, look, everything I see is extended in space and time. So it must be the case that you have to be extended in space and time to exist, i.e. being extended is a metaphysical property. And he thinks that's a metaphysical fallacy. Just assuming something which is pervasive is therefore necessary, mm. right? Greenness is in the green world. Physicalists, um, reductive physicalists, materialists might be uh, guilty of that when it comes to extension or physical manifestation or whatever um in our world mm. okay yeah 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 so um it's on page 61 where he kind of makes the assertion that there is no bare existence and so this was when he's talking about the green world he he says that there are a couple of objections that might get raised and it's the last one that i think is the one that's most pertinent for me so it's the top of page 61 right so um he's saying there's one further problem actually page 60 he says there's one further problem stemming from the green world argument that i need to address before we can move on so it says, for the sake of simplicity, let us say that there are three domains. The green domain, which is his transformation of the world, of, or of the word world, right, domain here, um, which he hasn't really explained yet. But domain will eventually then become fields of sense, but we'll get there. Um, but okay, so you've got a green domain where everything is green, a brown domain where everything's browned, and a hat domain where everything is a hat all the way down and all the way up. Uh, then he says, my suggestion was that in each domain there is a specific predicate, greenness, brownness, 
and happiness that fulfills the function of existence. This meaning is what's it's interesting pervasive. here. Yeah. Right, meaning it's pervasive. And it fills the function of existence. So for Gabriel, that I think is going to be important because um, there's something imminent in the functional relationship between greenness, brownness, hatness, and the notion of existence rather than them being in a sort of like externally related relation, which I think is kind of important to think about. But so the next thing he says is, um, so each domain, there's a specific predicate that fulfills the function of existence. However, the objection goes, is it not the case that the green objects in the green domain, in addition to being green, also exist? And this was my thought as I was reading this. I was thinking precisely this. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking about this. I'm like, but isn't it also the case that the green objects also exist, that existence is another predicate, that existence is another property as well as greenness being a property. And then he says, if this interpretation of the green world argument is correct, do we not have to say that it does not at all establish that our world could be an existence domain in the sense in which the green domain is a green domain? All domains would be existence domains with the difference that the green domain has an additional property, greenness, that is similar to existence in that it is not a proper property. Again, that it is a kind of um, a metaphysical property, right? And so that was my that was my kind of objection, or not objection, but question as I was thinking of this. I was like, would not this be the case? And then he says, existence would, after all, have a universal structure with the exception that the inhabitants of the green domain might confuse existence with greenness, just as in our domain, many people typically confuse existence with spatiotemporal location or with being a spatiotemporality located entity or agent, right? Um, and then I love this, given that spatiotemporality, at the very least, abounds in our neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah, it occasionally has those good turns of phrase. Yeah. But yeah, so that was my question. Like, why why not look at the green world and say, okay, so it's defined by the predication of greenness, but also um, greenness in their objectness have another predicate, which is existence, right? And he says no. Well, say that again, the last part. So so I thought that why, why couldn't it be the case that, that green objects in the green domain – in addition to having greenness as a property, that they also have existence as a property. Like, why why not make that move? Well, I think, I mean, he is making the move, I think, where he's saying, um, so imagine the hypothetical that I mentioned, where in the green world, a red thing pops up. Well, now all of a sudden, the hypothesis that green or being green is a metaphysical property has been refuted because there's now a red thing. So you don't have to be green to be in the world, Right. It was just right. contingently the case that everything was green. Um, it just happened to be that way, right? It wasn't necessarily that way. So can you do? The, can you make the same move with existence? Oh, something just appeared, which does not exist. No, you can't make that move, right? So you mm. can't have the red thing in the existence uh, domain. So that makes existence different from being green. It's still not a proper property, right? So we've shown with the argument from the green world that um, there's a, a greenness could be or could it's possible greenness is not a proper property, right? In our world, it is in a lot of cases, right? Like in the domain of things that are outside my window, I can distinguish the trees from the river because the trees are green and the river is not. Well, sometimes it's kind of green, but that's just because it's dirty as fuck. 
Um, but usually I can use greenness as a proper property. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? You could have a world where everything is green, and then you wouldn't be able to distinguish things by their being green, right? So mm. um, he's going to, I think he's trying to say existence is not like that, right? It is, it's true that it's not a proper property, right? The, green, the argument from the green world helps us establish that. Um, but it's also not a metaphysical property. Right. Yeah, it's it's not a metaphysical property because greenness in the green world fulfills the function of existence, right? There is no property or predicate of existence that supersedes or that is in addition to the property or the predicate, let's say, the specific predicate of greenness, right? And that's because for him, greenness and existence in the green world or in the green domain, they coincide, he says. Mm-hmm. They're and coextensive, this is because, yeah. Well, are they coextensive? He says they coincide, and does that make a difference? Does that matter? Hmm. Because I, I think he's getting away from the language of extensionality because extensionality seems to, one, imply determinateness and potentially spatiotemporality, and also coextension um, could imply... Uh, a relation or some sort of connection to uh, like proper properties, right? As extensionality is related to determinateness, related to spatiotemporality, requires some sort of investigation of proper properties. And I think he's kind of shoving all of that aside to say, no. So in the green world, uh, greenness fulfills that function of existence because in a domain, um, there are only kind of how does he say here for objects to exist uh, is different in each field. And that in the domain, there's not um, a unified existence domain that supersedes or that determines or um, there's no concept over which uh, these worlds are instantiated that is existence. But that rather each domain is specific in itself, in its variations, based on these functions that specify it that um that determine it we might say and that's why he says there is no existence domain there are only several domains which he's going to get to later right yeah so we're kind of talking about two different things here like there's a dialectical progress between the argument from the green world and then to what you're talking about there right so the argument from the green world is meant to show that exist neither existence nor being green is a proper property right um or, or, or being green is not essentially a proper property right um, it kind of depends upon circumstances and contingencies. And then once he says that, he says, you know, well, you could just think then, as you're saying, existence is just a thing that ex- that is uh, the metaphysical property, that everything has to have to be in the world, right? That's a sort of natural conclusion you would have after considering the argument from the green world, because even if it's not all green, it is all existing. So then he goes to the um, to this point about uh, the plurality of domains, right? And here on page 60, he says, existence is whatever property all objects in an unrestricted domain have, such that they're having any other property entails that they have the property in question. So greenness could have been that property. Um, So what I take it he's saying there is, as you were saying a second ago, existence isn't the sort of capital D domain, the totalizing domain that encompasses all other domains, which is what you might think after considering the argument from the green world, right? He, he wants to sort of reject that um, that movement after the argument from the green world. Instead, going to say, 
existence isn't that way. It's just whatever property, and he's going to later call an ontological property, that all objects have in an unrestricted domain such that they're having any other property until they have the property in question. So if you have any properties at all, um, then you have the property of existence. Right? You can't where, just have where does he talk about by itself. Where does he talk about ontological property? Uh, he mentioned the beginning of the chapter um, as the property that to exist is to appear in specific fields of sense. So he's going to say that existence is a property that domains or fields of sense have and not objects. Oh, that's going to be his argument that he yeah. ultimately advocates. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah he just you. mentions it here. He doesn't argue for it yet. Okay, um, but eventually you, he's going to say that, that objects or individuals don't have the property of existence. Only the domains do. Um, but he's working his way up to that, right? And so below okay. that on page 60, right in the middle, this is kind of the key um, quote that I wrote down from the whole chapter. He says, there really are the several domains, but they are not instances of a higher genus, the all-encompassing existence domain. For every domain, there is something not appearing in it, something that does not exist in it. In other words, we have to be located in a domain where for some objects it is true that they do not exist in that domain. And so I don't know what he means by a lot of that, but the first part of it, I think, is the, the key point for right now, which is that there is not this all-encompassing, totalizing existence domain where existence would be the metaphysical property that you have to have to be in the world. He's going to instead of a pluralism of domains that sort of don't have any higher genus domain of which they are species, right? So it's his, right. that's his rejection of the, the world or his classic argument we talked about in the, the introductory episode about the world does not exist, right? The capital W world does not exist. Um, so that's kind of the, the target that he's going for here is to to not have to say that existence is this thing that everything has to have in order to be in the world. I think you mentioned mm. earlier some something about existence being different or meaning something different in different domains. I don't remember where that was. Or do you remember that? Uh, da, 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 da. For objects to exist is something different in each field. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because that that fits perfectly into this idea of the the several domains of which. Um, there is no all-encompassing higher genus domain. Yeah, exactly. So then existence itself seems to be um, a flexible term. So for objects to exist is something different in each field. So again, that seems to think that this this kind of fits in with this coincidence, if you will, in his green domain example, this coincidence between greenness and existence, um, which would also be a coincidence between brownness and existence, and a coincidence between hatness and existence in the hat world and the brown world, respectively, right? So that means that there is something in an, in an imminent relation between these concepts that are typically related in a transcendent relation or like an externally related uh, relation. So that there's something imminent to them, that greenness and existence, maybe in a generative sense, um, insofar as they emerge within a domain that distinguishes existence in each different field um, in its particularity. Yeah, and the cash value that I think, and the reason why he goes from this argument, which he doesn't fully establish, he doesn't fully justify it yet, he kind of hints he's going to do it later, is to say... If this is true, if it's the case that existence is is means something different in different domains, right? Then you shouldn't just assume because everything's green that that's what you have to be to exist or to be the case, right? Um, it's not a metaphysical property, and so likewise, you shouldn't think just because 
in one domain, everything is spatially temporally extended, but therefore it has to be to exist, mm. right? And so he's kind of likening, um, in some sense, this kind of reductive physicalism um, to the naive person in the green world, right? They're sort of taking uh, what existence is in one domain and applying it to all domains as if it's the, it is the totalizing um, domain of existence. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, where else do we go from here? I mean, I don't think we really need to talk about like Russellian propositions and the stuff about like inferentialism and stuff like that. I'm not sure that's super necessary. Facts right versus now. truth. Like the one thing I did want to say that I thought was interesting about that is is or at least I wanted to ask about it um, is it relates to this kind of really prominent term called Fabrica Mundi that you can trace back to like Giordani Bruno in particular. But this idea that um, that somehow you know humanity is Homo Faber, like the, the the human architect, the man who constructs, is kind of the idea that it was oftentimes uh, formulated as. And Fabrica Mundi is this idea that we create the world, and whether that means in a literal, like ontological sense, that there is like this raw, meaningless materiality that we uh, kind of just project any sort of meaning and differentiation onto or whether it's like layers on top of it or whatever it means that there's this this idea that somehow we create the world and i thought it was important to understand that he's fundamentally rejecting any sort of hint at that even in the Russellian form because i think he sees and tell me if i'm wrong here he sees that because for russell truth claims are related to facts about propositions that still creates a sort of like abstraction away, if you will, from his own realist ontology, which is that facts pertain to the relational state of affairs in a domain, which is a different formulation, which means that this notion of like fabrica mundi is entirely destroyed whatsoever, not just in the kind of like caricatured postmodern sense that like we just kind of create the the worlds in which we exist or the, the worlds in which we live but even in like the linguistic turn that there's still i think he sees um uh what a zoontological optimism in like the russellian formulation am i getting that right yeah i hadn't thought about i was really perplexed as to why he brought in russell into parts of this I'm curious to see if that comes back up as sort of the reason why I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I don't know. I have to think more about if that's the case, if he sees in Russell the germs of of that happening, even in analytic philosophy. Um, could be. I mean, he's going to discuss Frege in the next chapter. And since Russell yeah. and Frege differed over what propositions were uh, and over this idea of, what a, of a sense, um, then I think that might be coming to clearer view. And he does say that he's going to engage in the debate between Russell and G.E. Moore over something about existence. I can't remember the note, and I can't find it right now. But he is going to engage in that, he says, later on. Okay, so, yeah, so we'll have to um, back to that. We oh, I think it's right, it's right here. Um, he doesn't mention more here, but he says, as I will argue in more detail later, um, this idea that facts, facts, oh, so first let me just say, he says facts are truths in our ordinary way of speaking about them, right? He says, as I will argue in more detail later, this preserves another valuable insight from Russell, namely his claim that no object just exists by itself. He believes that existence, therefore, is not a predicate in the ordinary sense. And then he says that he's going to go on and engage with the kind of Russell and G.E. Moore uh, debate. So 
Yeah. Okay, so he's just using Russell there to buttress the idea that um, there's no such thing as bare existence. Yeah, but then, but then on the next page, page 47, he says, Is Russell not ultimately committed to claiming that the relation between a propositional function and the instantiations which turn it into a true proposition only comes to be if someone holds beliefs that are at least either determinately true or determinately false? So he's almost he's claiming that there's like an anti-realism or an idealism in Russell here, and then he says, but this would amount to a crazy form of idealism or at least ontological anti-realism, and that this would mean that nothing had ever existed had no one ever had any truth-apt beliefs such that a certain propositional function is sometimes true. Thus, Russell would have to make a case for all-out Platonism about propositions according to which propositions sometimes also happen to be grasped, asserted, believed, denied, etc., but they are out there regardless of our further representation of them, right? So he kind of seems to be saying that Russell is an ontological anti-realist even though Russell would claim to be maybe an epistemological realist. Yeah? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm not really sure what he's claiming. Uh, in that whole section. I mean, I, I have a, a bare bones understanding of how Russellian propositions differ from Fragan uh, ones, and I don't I don't find what he's saying to be familiar with that. So I'm not really sure what he's claiming there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to well, build we, a couple we, straw men in order to make your argument, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so some of those claims seem, seem a little bit outlandish in terms of uh, Russell having like a sort of idealism there. I don't know about that. Um, Okay. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure when we talk about Frege next chapter, we'll we'll talk about Russell and Frege and maybe get a better understanding of what he's claiming about Russell. Okay, cool. So I guess then let's just sum up. Um, so existence is not a proper property because a proper property is a property that distinguishes individuals between one another, right? In a domain, um, yeah. In a domain, yeah, yeah. Existence does not do that. So then the question is, okay, so existence is not a proper property – the history of metaphysics is kind of engaged with this, but could could existence be a metaphysical or a logical property? And a metaphysical property is a property anything has to have in order to belong to the world, so it's necessary. And then a logical property is a property anything has to have in order to be an object at all. Um, so that I kind of we could talk more about that but we're running kind of long here so we don't maybe need to wrap that up but then at the very end of the chapter on page like 65 maybe or something like that um yeah he lays out the theoretical ontological options right he's like so these are the options either one existence is a metaphysical property two existence is a logical property because it's not he's already proven it's not a it's not a proper property but it could still be a metaphysical property it could be a logical property or three maybe it's not a property at all or four existence is a non-discriminatory property of each and every individual and then he basically says and i think this is just for foreshadowing all four of those are wrong <laughs> yeah yeah it's, i mean he's already shown why he thinks the metaphysical property options wrong I don't think he's shown about the logical property yet, but that's going to mm. be basically his point that um, that uh, existence is not a it's not a property of um, individuals, right? So it has nothing to do with being an object. Although um, he does he does he does uh, say that he did address logical property, right? The, the first thing, 
Yeah, he says we're not yet fully we are not yet fully equipped to decide between these options here, even though my intention has been to rule out metaphysical property and logical property. Yeah, I saw that and I went back and I couldn't find where he did that. <laughs> okay. So maybe he's being a little optimistic and in his argument in detailing what he's done. But I think it's it's entailed by the conclusion he's gonna to get to eventually. So there'll be some sense in which we'll have an argument for that. Okay. Um, and maybe he's already done it and we just passed over it. I don't know. Um, yeah, and then three and four. Uh, four is weird, right? Because four is existence is a non-discriminatory property, which would mean that there are properties which don't individuate, which I don't even know what that would mean. I think he's going to reject that for being kind of incoherent. Okay. Um, and instead, of course, his, his eventual conclusion is going to be that our, our best option is to say that existence is a property of domains or fields of sense and not of objects. Um, so yeah, that'll, that'll be the, the thing he's going for in the end. That's really interesting. Yeah. One thing yeah. I did want to say, um, there was language here at the beginning that I found really fascinating because it kind of fits into a lot of stuff that I'm thinking through right now. Um, when he's talking about individuals and this will be the last thing I say, and I think this kind of opens us up into a larger set of of concerns pertaining to ontotheology, and then we could even maybe talk about pertaining to like political philosophy. But he says, traditionally, individuals are understood as completely determined objects, as entia emnimodo determinata. And then he says, that's a criterion I will be rejecting. Now, I think something that was so interesting about this is this notion of uh, entia omnimodo determinata is basically like uh, an, an absolutely determined being, right? Or an absolutely determined entity. Mm-hmm. But that language actually also can be used with reference to cost. So that the real cost is completed. And I thought that was really fucking interesting because there's something about sociality in the desire to fully articulate an entity as uh, as absolutely determined that I think fits into a kind of larger set of concerns about um, about like cosmos or about harmony or about um, balance, about justice, about uh, an adequate response, about a settling of accounts. These are the things that are going through my mind when I'm thinking about the presumption that objects are absolutely determined. And what I wonder is, is is not the desire to abs- to to, um, to define or to articulate objects as being absolutely determined, is there not some sort of desire to cover over, if you will, any fracturing in existence, to, um, to project or to posit completeness, totality, or wholeness, not even at a universal level, but even at the level of the particular? even at the level of the individual object, that, and that that's one of the kind of hallmarks of ontotheological thought, right? And so that's kind of one of the things that I've kind of been thinking about along the way here too, is that there's something about um, how it is that ontology, or maybe we might say metaphysics, operates that seems to function by, in psychoanalytic terms, an obsessive logic, right? This need to um, control to uh, settle the accounts, so to speak, to fully determine the cost, we might say, right? To fully pay the cost, you might say. And then I'm thinking, 
then that gets into like some interesting redemptive language. So this is me totally getting speculative with something that is not there in the text, but that's just kind of where my mind is at. Yeah, I'm curious because Gabriel's uh, motivations are obviously pretty different than that, right? When he's talking about um, completely determinate being, he's thinking of like the idea that for something to be an individual, there has to be a fact of the matter about everything regarding it, right? So how many hairs does it have in its head? There's a fact of the matter. Even if we don't know what it is, yeah, yeah. there is a exactly. fact of the matter. It's determined. It's determinate whether or not there are zero between zero and 15,000 hairs or whatever, right? right. Um, and so he's he's going to have to claim that's not the case. And he even mentions in a footnote that this might mean that there's something to do with the ex- law of excluded middle that he has to deal with here. And I wasn't sort of sure what he actually concluded about that. Um, but he wants to say things like there isn't um, a fact of the matter about how many hairs um, Gandalf has, right? Uh, and it's not completely determinate. And yet Gandalf exists in, in some field of sense, right? So, and he mentioned sort of, you know, fictional beings as being kind of a paramount example of this, although it's not just up, applied to fictional beings. Um, so he's going to have to reject that idea that uh, all individuals um, are completely determined. So that's kind of his main motivation as far as I can, I can tell. Um, and yet there's some connection, I think, between that and what you're talking about, even if it's um, not one that I think Gabriel's sort of hinting at explicitly. But mm. sort of the, maybe the reason or the the purpose behind this totalizing tendency, um, whether it be a psychoanalytic one or a political economical one or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because when you talk about like uh, the case of Gandalf and the hairs on his head, like one of the things that's inter- interesting about that is the reason or one of the things that's interesting about it not being a fully determined object in in traditional senses is then that allows for the image to be malleable. Right, because it's not fully determined in itself, so it's just simply a figment of the imagination, so to speak, quote unquote. Right, which means it could be created otherwise. It's not necessary. It's not essential. It's flimsy. It doesn't have reality. Right. Whereas typically, it's understood that real objects, quote unquote, in their absolute determinateness, are completely and fully, let's say, sufficient as those objects, as completely determined. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and he's going to kind of like problematize both of those uh, tendencies. I don't know if he's going to then say like that like images are fully determined. I don't think he's going to say that. But maybe it's just that like nothing is absolutely determined, right? Um, and that there's some sort of like flexibility in their appearing in domains that implies a relationality um, but that doesn't sort of that doesn't infringe upon the realism of the facts being instantiated in the domains or in the objects within the domains. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if he's going to claim something like that. Because it seems to me that he would probably say that uh, spatiotemporally extended things are completely determinate. Um, But that doesn't seem to necessarily be entailed by his position. Um, We'll have to see. I'm not sure what he's going to say about that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he does say that individuals are understood as completely determined, and then he says that's a criterion I will be rejecting. Yeah, individuals. But I, I imagine within that spatio-temporally extended things, he'd probably say are, are the kind of individuals that are completely determinate. But maybe he won't. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Okay. All right. Last thoughts? 
Um, so yeah, this is kind of a bridge chapter, I think. So um, try not to get too bogged down in this if you're listening, uh, talking about proper properties and metaphysical properties. Just keep in view the uh, main target, which is this idea of the reductive physicalism or, you know, Gabriel's calling it materialism or first order metaphysical materialism. <laughs> and this sort of idea that uh, materialist metaphysics is the is the sort of default option in a lot of um, philosophy. And so that should be rejected. And we don't have any good reason or any good justification for thinking that um, existence is restricted to spatiotemporal existence, um, let alone spatiotemporal existence as an elementary particle, right? And mm. so uh, we can reject that and instead talk about existence as much more uh, variegated, open um, than that. Mm. Than and then on the physical... And on the flip side of that, even though he doesn't spend as much time explicitly kind of nominating it, um, what you just described is what Graham Harmon refers, refers to as the undermining of the object, right? Like a, reductive da- a reduction downwards. But there's also an inflationary reduction, which is where you say that, no, the really real of things is the container, the universe, totality, reality with a capital R, Something along those lines, right? And he simultaneously is going to reject that for also being reductive. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, there's reductions in different directions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Graham Harmon refers to as overmining. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) All right. So, in a couple of weeks, we'll come back to Chapter 3, which will be on Kant and Frege. And we'll talk about it, but maybe we'll do some Frege reading in the meantime. Uh, We'll see. Maybe we'll give a little view of the the notes in the chapter and see if it would behoove us to uh, read a little Frege. Is it a long chapter? Uh, I don't know. I'm just looking right now because I was going to say if it is, we might break it up into two. Let's see. It ends on 105. It's like 30 pages. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. You can give me some Frege homework. Yeah, we'll see. I'll go with the notes and see if it's worthwhile. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool, cool. We can read a uh, Critique of Pure Reason, too. Let's just do a, a sub-book club on the Critique <laughs> of Pure Reason first. Uh, all right, so then we'll get back to this text next year? <laughs> next decade. <laughs> you've been you've been teasing about doing Critique of Pure Reason for a long time. I don't think you're actually teasing. I think you really want to do a book club of Critique of Pure Reason. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying with me, but I just mean in general. I think you do want to. Yeah, for sure, dude. I'm doing a Kant seminar next semester. Uh, so yeah, I'm anticipating doing... At our, I want to do our pace of Critique of Pure Reason so we get through it in about eight years. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a seminar on the science of logic right now. Yeah, and pretty similar. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And that's literally uh, the person who's kind of like leading the discussion was like, if you really want to do science of logic, it's going to take you like at least a year. You know, and it's like, fuck, we're trying to do this in like six weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's like a year-long Bible read-through, but with science and logic. Oh, Jesus. All right, sweet. Let's clear our brains, my foggy head, uh, with some simple pleasures. I'm, I'm putting this at your feet. It better be simple pleasures here, Troy. <laughs> Um, it's time for the sticky leaves where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a potentially bleak, dark, cold, meaningless universe. T-Roy, what are you smiling about? So I don't know if smiling is the, is the exact uh, representation of, of my response to this thing, but um, 
I want to talk about the musical artist Lingua Ignota, a.k.a. Kristen Hader, today. And I sent you, Austin, a song um, before I was recording so you could I could get your reaction to it. Were you able to listen to it? Oh, shit. You know what? I will do it right now. Okay. So let's pause. Holy shit, man. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of overwhelmed. So I've never heard of her before. And... Uh, as I was listening, I just, you know, on Apple Music, it gives you like a little synopsis of the project that she's been involved in and stuff like that. And uh, that all sounds fucking amazing. And then I'm also at the same time following along to the lyrics on that page that you sent me. And so I was listening to the lyrics and damn, dude, like I, I kind of got a little teary eyed actually at one point. Yeah, that so, means, I mean, that's you're, you're supposed to feel a not, overwhelmed. <laughs> okay, yeah, like, I mean, that's not saying much. I, I cry at fucking everything, but um, <laughs> but I did. It was um, it was extremely rich lyrically and musically, and then her voice is fucking unreal. Um, and then when she mixes together the screaming and the and the singing, she's got this kind of uh, phenomenal quality about her ability to, and, and I don't mean this in like a denigrating sense, but she kind of almost sounds like a witch. Right. Oh yeah, for um, sure. And and I think that's intentional because there's something about her conjuring, uh, you know. But so she has like this witch-like quality that's making me think of like these amazing. Because I, I guess she's classically trained as a singer. Obviously, you can tell. Um, mm-hmm. But it makes me think of like somebody playing a rich role on like Broadway or like fucking Hamlet or something like that. You know, <laughs> like in Wicked, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was but thinking like the there's a version. <laughs> well, there, there's a musical called Into the Woods that's one of my favorite musicals of all, of all time. It's a oh, Sondheim. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Sondheim musical. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, shit, that's awful. But anyway, <laughs> um, the original Broadway cast, it's Bernadette Peters who plays the witch, and she's fucking amazing. And I kind of, for some reason, got a little bit of that in in this as well. So, But go ahead, continue. Why did you brace this or, or place this upon me? Yeah, so I wanted to show it to you just because I thought maybe it would be a thing that you've never heard anything like it before. Never. Which I imagine is the case, yeah. So yeah. for listeners, Lingua Ignota um, is a like one person project or largely one person project by uh, a woman named Kristen Hader. Um, she's released two albums under the name. Um, and she kind of comes from, she's classically trained. I think she went to like Brown or something. Mm. Um, and she, she's kind of trained in like Western classical music and she, in her, in her writing and interviews talks uh, very intelligently about Western classical music, and especially at the, I guess the Baroque period, you can see the most having the most influence on what she does. The song that I sent you is probably the least, of the kind of neoclassical style that she's involved in. Um, but of course the, what's unique about her isn't that she, um, you know, can like talk about Hayden, uh, and, and Bach, but because she incorporates neoclassical, you know, piano driven, um, music with harsh noise, industrial metal and black metal. Um, and that song, especially that essentially was called, uh, Oh, ruthless, great divine director. And that's got a sort of, the latter half of the song goes full black metal, um, hmm. which is surprising when you start out neoclassical, right? <laughs> um, and so she combines all these elements and the the two albums she's released, I think are absolutely brilliant. And I, I first heard about her about two years ago when her first record came out. It was kind of a, a huge hit on the underground because she released it through Bandcamp um, hmm. and she wasn't signed anywhere um, or anything. And she 
not only is the music obviously something that would catch your ear because it's so unique in the combination of genres and styles, but her lyrics are um, thematically oriented around domestic abuse, largely. Um, probably the song that I sent you less obviously so than some of her other works, which are very explicitly centered around domestic abuse um, mm-hmm. that she has suffered and misogyny in general. Uh, and that's kind of garnered her some criticism from the more like MRA focused side of uh, extreme music. Um, but but luckily, I think she's been really embraced by a lot of the major uh, groups in sort of like the underground metal community and in the noise community and stuff like that. So she's she's very highly celebrated. And so it's, it's certainly not the case that she's like ostracized for being a woman or anything like that. Um, but what I find so impressive, what uniquely sort of intrigues me is lyrically, she um, usually formulates her lyrics in the form of the imprecatory psalms, which for listeners who don't have the sort of biblical background that that uh, you and me have the imprecatory psalms are the psalms that are centered around like cursing one's enemies or calling mm. on god to um sort of wreak vengeance upon one's enemies not the ones you normally read at like a baptism or mm. <laughs> or something <laughs> like that right they're the ones where like david or whomever the psalmist is is calling yeah, not on the, god the to lord murder the people. lord the Lord bless you and keep you, and it's not that shit. <laughs> no, it's like, may the Lord wreak his vengeance upon you and smite all your children, and I will glory in the day when that happens. Yeah, um, yeah not exactly the same tone you expect from the Psalms that are, you know, um, recited at weddings and stuff. So what she does is she takes these imprecatory Psalms and the language from them, and she grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school, so she has a pretty mm. good understanding of um, the verbiage used in the Psalms, especially the King James style interpretations or uh, translations of them and she reappropriates that language for basically calling for wrath upon domestic abusers and her mm-hmm. and from the from the first person perspective of someone who suffered from abuse so calling upon basically her abuser to be smited um and it's it's you a know, really the- brilliant form of, of of lyricizing this style of music that involves the sort of baroque neoclassical elements with sort of harsh noise industrial and metal Hmm. So this this song didn't it wasn't apparent to me that it was about domestic abuse, but um, part of that is because she also uses a line "I'm a patient man," and so I wondered if she was like, because this this song seems to kind of be taking place against a different target, not just like an individual abuser, but um, it kind of has seems to have a larger target right so like she talks about oh collapsing lightless kingdom i call upon the rapist and the demon so there's kind of something explicit there right hail death's unforgiving flame hail death's dark unfailing ocean oh ruthless great divine director i call upon the hammer then it's may every glass house split and shatter and so there's something bigger it almost seems like it's much more of a structural argument right about this fallen world about a world like a or a hegemon we might say um, a hegemon that is this lightless kingdom right that is collapsing and um and then she's basically calling upon its destruction its ruination yeah it's or, sort of jeremiah and lamentations right it's kind of got mm. that uh, feel t- except for the first line which is a great first line uh everyone so i know good. is a fucking cop <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, and she's got a flair for the song titles. Like, listen to some of these song titles from her last record. Um, Do You Doubt Me, Traitor? May Failure Be Your Noose? Fragrant Is My Many Flowered Crown? Which is a great track where she talks about being a woman who wreaks vengeance upon all of the people who've abused her. And then as she's as she's basically killed them all, she says, oh, and by the way, I have a crown of flowers on while I'm doing it. <laughs> um, if the poison won't take you, my dogs will, which is fucking badass. Mm. Uh, Spite alone holds me aloft. And then from her first record, but one of my favorites is Holy is the Name of My Ruthless Axe, <laughs> where she talks about uh, killing a rapist. So, yeah, it's pretty hardcore and not exactly, as I said, beginning um, the thing you would smile at. But I think that she's super impressive uh, musical artist right now. Probably my favorite um, artist in extreme metal in any sense right now. Um, And anybody who is intrigued by uh, unique and totally unprecedented forms of art, I think would really enjoy her. And at the very least, even if you're sort of not into this type of music, um, I would say check it out just for the intrigue factor and maybe even watch some videos online of her because her, I've never seen her live, but her live performances are kind of renowned. Um, she obviously didn't start out with a lot of resources. She was, you know, independent artist working with Bandcamp releases. And so her style evolved through basically playing in abandoned warehouses and then inviting people mm. on the internet to come and see her. And she would basically have a backing track, which would have the um, the music. And she'd play piano and then sing. And her sort of the unique factor of it, she would not be on a stage. She'd just have this piano on the floor and have people mm. surround it. And she'd go in and out of the crowd and interact with people and use sort of, she's kind of famous for using like the, the lighting fixtures in these like warehouses or concert halls or wherever it is and use them as props for kind of making an impromptu lighting show. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people mention that her her live experience, live performances are kind of life-changing in terms of how unique and abrasive and emotive they are to the point where uh, I don't know that she's going to be able to keep it up for very long because I know she's detailed in some interviews that her, her voice is dying because of mm. what she does to herself in these performances. And she often... Um, ends up damaging herself both vocally and otherwise through how extreme these performances are. Um, but don't let that, any of that make people think that she's like insane or someone who you'd be scared by. She's, I've heard her in interviews and she's very approachable and a regular person in every way, but, um, she's, uh, she's part of this metal community and, uh, well, she's some extreme people in it. She's also classically trained. So her standard of vocal quality She's going to be very sensitive to any degradation because she wants to mm-hmm. retain, obviously, her classically trained um, voice, which implies that she doesn't want to develop polyps on her vocal folds or anything like that, right? So when you scream, it doesn't matter. Like usually if you're in like a metal band or if you're like a screamo dude or something like that, like you're not a classically trained singer. You might have professional training and you might know how to professionally scream, but nevertheless, you're still putting strain on your vocal cords, right? But she's classically trained, which means that she knows like that vocal degradation is irreversible. So mm-hmm. this isn't like, so when you say like, it's, it's not that she's insane. Like when she's saying is she's saying like, Hey, if I'm going to do this kind of music, there's a fucking point of diminishing returns, you know? Yeah. There's, there's some sense in which she, if she keeps going and she's going, there's a, an evanescent quality to 
um, the uniqueness of these performances. I don't imagine in 10 years, if she's still going, she'll be doing the exact same thing she's doing now. Mm. In the same yeah. way that you can't uh, burn every guitar you play. Yes. Unless right. you're, you know, Pete Townsend or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it was fucking interesting. It made me want to listen to more, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that's the kind of thing you're going to uh, really enjoy just for its own sake. Um, but maybe you will. I don't know. Some of her stuff is really beautiful in the in the sense of, you know, she you know, elicits the neoclassical, really kind of epic, baroque um, uh, vibe in a lot of her songs. And so that part, I think anybody who enjoys music in general will enjoy. The harsh noise stuff is an acquired taste, and so not everyone's going to like that. Um, but I think you can appreciate it, even if you don't necessarily enjoy it. Yeah, you know, it's it, 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 when I was listening to it, I actually was thinking, I was like, this isn't the kind of music I would put on my headphones and go for a walk and, and listen to. Right. You need I to mean, like maybe lie in your bed and close your eyes. And yes. To it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in, it, it feels like I need to give it attention, like actual proper attention, and pay attention to it rather than just have it be background or like motivating or workout music or something like. That. Although it could be if I were more kind of like inclined in that way. But for me, it seems much more like an artifact to analyze, but also enjoy at the same time. You know. Yeah, I mean, even for me, like, I, I like a lot of, you know, industrial noise, power electronics, stuff like that. And for me, even, I don't find myself enjoying walking the dog while listening to this record <laughs> as much. <laughs> uh, parts of it I do, uh, but some of it I don't. But then if you just kind of uh, focus entirely upon it and remove all other sensory distractions, I find it utterly overwhelming and, and beautiful. Mm. So if that's your vibe, then I think you will love this stuff. Well, sick, man. Always coming in hot with the music wrecks. Yeah, man. There's 2020 is the shittest year, but it's got great music. <laughs> I mean, I guess if there's some sort of, I don't know, way to get through shittiness through art, yeah? Yeah, dude. I mean, they just announced uh, just announced this morning that Sufjan Stevens is going to release his next record later this year. Oh, really? I already pre-ordered the vinyl, dude. <laughs> of course you did uh, I haven't listened to Sufjan in, I mean I have like Come on feel the Illinois But that's it <laughs> So uh. Alright sweet Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there Thank you for joining us For another Bulky meaty read through Of Gabrielle's Fields of Sense as Troy said at the outset, if you want to support what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash dawn. There's a link down below as well, and that's patreon.com slash dawn. You can get bonus access, and you can support our habit. Um, and yeah, uh, there's a poll up for the next patron-led episode, so go over and check that out. If you are already a patron, you can vote for that. Um, and yeah, you can tweet us insta us email us etc 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 the standard shit yeah dude yeah yeah all right well i think that's pretty much it unless there's anything else you want to say just one more thing i can think of dude what's that das vidanya americanski yeah.